0: Thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. Therefore we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Jesus, I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the Jesus we come to know today will not be a different Jesus tomorrow. That we can rely on you that you will not suddenly turn upon us, that we can trust the consistency of your love and of your discipline and of your care and of your promises. I pray right now that you would awaken our hearts to your beauty and that you would be with my mouth right now as I speak, that you would help me to be clear, get a lot of ground to cover. And you have given us this book and you've given us this word and it's for our good. And so I pray that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles uh, with you, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 22, and we'll be covering chapter 22 all the way to chapter 24. Numbers 22 to 24. We've been working through the Torah as a church, the first five books of the Bible, which are really five chapters in one big book. And you'll see that again today. Numbers is quoting Genesis. Okay? Why? Because it's, it's one book. It's interconnected. So we'll, we'll see that later. But before we dive into the book of Numbers, what I'd like to do is, is set the stage for what we'll see there. All right? So a few mornings ago, I was at the gym and uh, right up the street, and there was this guy there I felt really bad for him, Um, It's allergy season, kind of like my buddy Brian has been dealing with a lot of allergies too, right? And uh, this guy was sneezing and sneezing and sneezing, and he was at the, he'd do a rep and then sneeze, do a rep, and the guy at the desk, um, Skyler, he's a believer, he goes to the Assemblies of God Church, and Skyler was going, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, like he said it 10 times, it was really funny, I, I was around the corner, so they didn't know I was there. But as I was talking about, uh, reading through the passage for day, today, it's all about blessing. And uh, the Pentateuch really is all about blessing. We'll talk about that in a second. But I was just thinking, man, God bless you. That's a phrase we just throw around a lot. I got off work today, it was a big blessing. Um, God bless America. We've heard that one before, seen it written on stuff. But what does the word blessing mean? We throw it around a lot. Well, I, I, th- I think um, it basically means that, or the way we use it at least, we, we got or we're going to get good stuff as opposed to bad stuff. Blessing. I get good stuff, so it's blessing. I get bad stuff, and it's not blessing. It's, it's curse. So money, rest, friendship, help, comfort, food, on and on, uh, that's what we would call blessing, good things. And when we introduce God into the equation, like God bless America, we mean, God, we want you to do good things to America. God bless you. I want good to come, to, come your way from God. Blessing, in short, in the Bible is a wish that something good would befall someone from god in the future and in the case of god when you insert god into the equation it's not just a wish god is the fountain of all blessing he is the source of all goodness think of the song we sing here often come thou fount of every blessing what is a fount a fount is a fountain it's short for fountain. Just fountain wouldn't fit in the song. Come now, fountain of every blessing. It wouldn't quite fit. So come now, fountain. God is a fountain of every blessing. Like a cool fountain when you're parched and you drink and drink and drink and it will never run dry, even if it's in the middle of a desert. God is like that. He is a fountain of blessing and of good. The source of all good things. And so to be able to enjoy light, enjoy um, this goodness, uh, we call it, if you're enjoying this goodness, you call it blessing from God, right? Now, in the Bible, blessing or the good life in the Bible is ultimately found in relationship with the source of all blessing, in relationship with God. So, if you want blessing, according to the Bible, you've got to be in a relationship with the fountain of blessing. All good things come from Him and through Him. And in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We read that the God of all goodness, he blessed Adam and Eve. He blesses our first parents and he tells them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the land, and subdue it. Now, tragically, I think most of us are familiar with this story. They do not. They rebel, they sin against the Lord, they spurn their blessing, and they bring curse upon creation, not blessing, the curse of sin and of death. You cut yourself off from the God of life, you get death. You get curse. You break the very words that gave you life. That's what they did. And they experienced life outside the garden. But God leaves them with a promise. Genesis 3, verse 15, he says to, to Satan, actually, who deceived them, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Seed is a word for kids, or kid, as we'll see soon. He, this singular seed of the woman, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, if you stomp on a poisonous snake, It might bite your heel, like the fangs go through the roof of its head and into your heel. That actually happens. If you stomp on a snake, your heel will get bruised by the viper, but you will crush its head. But the venom will go into you, and you will die. This is the poetic picture of a victor who stomps on a poisonous snake and experiences death because of it. You get this right at the beginning. And so the question throughout this whole book called the Torah should be this. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he that's going to come and do this, who's going to reverse the curse, defeat the snake? That's the question that actually drives the whole narrative of the Pentateuch forward. Who is this guy? So, we get a next big step in answering the question, who is he in Genesis 12? In those verses, God picks one man out of all the people of the earth and says that through his seed, all the peoples of the earth will find God's blessing once again. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, soon to be Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and i will bless those who bless you and him who honors i will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed you get the point through abraham lots of blessing not just blessing to abraham but to the whole world all the families of the earth will be blessed i hope you caught the many echoes of genesis 128 there not only blessing But like a new Adam, God's going to send him on a journey, not out of the garden, but back to a land, a land that was very Eden-like. He's going to be a new Adam-like figure, and God's going to multiply him, multiply his seed, his descendants, just like God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the land. So it will be with Abraham. And God Later on in verse 15 and 17 and 22, God specifies that it's through Abraham's seed, this coming descendant, that all nations will be blessed. Now in our story today, in Numbers 20, 22, Israel has multiplied greatly. They have been very fruitful. God has blessed the children of Abraham just as he promised. And because of this, it is freaking their enemies out. In particular, in our story, it's the king of Moab who's very, very scared. He's a man named Balak, and he does not want Israel blessed. He wants them cursed so that he might stand a chance of beating them in open war. That's where our story starts today. So what I'd like to do for the rest of our time together, I'm going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the story of Numbers 22 to 24 together. And then second, after we look at the whole story from beginning to end, we're going to look at the, um, the, the, the theme of blessing, God's blessing on the nation of Israel, despite their sin, actually. And then third, we're going to look at the, the promised lion king of Israel, the seed who will crush the end-time enemies of God. Remember the question from Genesis 3.15, who is he? Well, Numbers 24, especially, we're going to learn a little bit more about who he is. So let's start with the story to begin with. So again, it starts with this king named Balak who rules over the people of Moab, Israel's enemies. And last week in Numbers chapter 21, we learned that Balak's people, they were not a very strong nation. In fact, they were a nation of losers who served a loser God. Back in those days, if you had to fight in a war, you'd want to have the biggest, baddest God that you could think of on your side, okay? And you'd sacrifice all kinds of stuff, even your own children, tragically, to get this God's attention and be like, hey, look at all I've done for you. Be on my team. I want you on my side. Well, um, if you got those gods on your side, they would help you win. Well, if they... If you lost, it might be because your god wasn't actually the biggest, baddest god. There was a bigger one, and you just didn't know him, or whoops, you, you gambled wrong. Or it might be because your big bad god was really mad at you for something, and so you lost. This is just how it went. And, and so anyway, Balak's god Shamash had apparently gotten squashed. Um, so Shamash, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, we learned about that in Numbers 21. He'd gotten defeated by a different guy and his gods, by, by a, a king named Sihon, king of the Amorites. And it happened before Balak was the king. But now, Balak's inherited the leadership of a loser nation with a loser god, and he's got a real problem on his hands because he's got the plains of Moab now filled as far as the eye can see with these Israelites, and he, they have a bit of a track record of a very powerful god, Yahweh. And so um it kind of i i I was thinking what would this be like well when i was 15 okay i played for hartford middle summer league baseball and our team was terrible we had one win and 16 losses we beat argyle uh and one game got rained out i think and we lost 16 times in a row it was bad well one day um we got majorly creamed by salem new york which salem wasn't a very good team but they creamed us and then, okay, Greenwich, a little further, Greenwich utterly creamed Salem. So they creamed the team that creamed us, and we were going to play Greenwich. At that point, it's like, call in the reserves. We need to, you know, find some money and hire somebody else to play for us. Well, you know, this, we need a bigger god to help us, whatever, you know, we, we need help. And that's a bit like how Balak must have felt. Now, a fight is pointless. So, What he does is he reaches out to the ancient Middle East version of a witch doctor, okay? A man named Balaam, who must have been world famous for his power and abilities as a sorcerer, because he lived actually over 400 miles away. That's a long way, even for a car. But he lived 400 miles away, okay, and in the land of Midian, So look with me, if you would, at Numbers 22, verse 5. Balak, son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at that time, he sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said... A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. Hear that? Like any powerful witch doctor in Papua New Guinea, he's got a good reputation. And it's not just for his little people. It's global. If you want something done you hire Balaam and you pay a price because he's got the 1-800-GOD number or whatever, you know, little g-GOD, demons. So he reaches out. And you also hear the theme of blessing and curse here. Whoever you bless is blessed. Whoever you curse is cursed. So I guess Balaam would be able to do things, you know, do both things. Either bless, you know, if you want to hire him to bless somebody, he would do that too for a, a generous sum of money, and God says, verse twelve. Oh, so and then Balaam goes and inquires of God about what to do. He goes and inquires, and the living God of the Bible, Yahweh, apparently shows up to this Balaam guy. Look, like, oh hi, how are you? And Yahweh says to him, verse twelve: Do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these those people because they are blessed. Now, notice two things here. First, the God of Israel is not a tribal deity like Shamash. No, he's the God of all people. And he appears here to a pagan Midianite 400 miles from Israel. He's not bound by territories. He's not bound by any boundaries. He's the God of the whole world. And then second, remember God's promises to Abraham. No matter how badly Israel screws up in the wilderness, sinning again and again, God is still resolved to use this people to bring his blessing and his seed to the world and do away with curse forever. But Balak is a persistent guy and the interchange between him and Balaam, it must have taken months because the travel time was at least a few weeks to go see Balaam. But B- Balak, he doesn't take no for an answer. So his guys go, and it's a long time. Finally, they come back. He said no. And he was like, well, I'll send more important guys, and I'll send more money, and we'll try again. So this, again, this must have taken quite a while, but he sends it. And 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 again, Balaam's like, man, that's a lot of money. We don't know. We're not told the behind the scenes, but Balaam's like, Balaam already got an answer from the Lord. Okay? So he's like, well, whew boy, that's really shiny gold there. You know, you could just see, because we find out at the end of the story in Numbers 31, and we'll, we'll go there, but Balaam's not a good guy, okay? He's a really bad guy, actually, and we find that out. But God meets with him again, and he says, okay, you can go. But the same thing the Lord says to him, you cannot curse. You must only speak the words that I put in your mouth. So, Balaam the sorcerer saddles up his favorite donkey and he takes some of his assistants and he heads out on this long journey to the plains of Moab where Israel is located. Now, at this point, we're going to read the, the story at length here. We're going to read Numbers 22 to 35. Starting at verse 22. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between, uh, through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against the wall. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it laid down under Balaam, and he was angry, and he beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. It said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. Yeah, you're talking to a donkey, right? That's just the beginning of your troubles. You've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. But I would have spared it. I would have spared the donkey. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with the officials. So what are we to make of all this? Well, it does seem, though we're not told, that something must have shifted in Balaam's heart on the way. And God knew it. And so God waded into the situation to put an end to Balaam's twisted plans. Balaam knows he's not going to get paid if he does, you know, if he blesses and not curses. So maybe in his heart, he's already changing. We don't know. We're not exactly told, but something must have shifted. So God sends his angel to intervene. And the story is really, really humorous, okay? Because Balaam, He's this pagan sorcerer, right? He's got all the demonic deities of the ancient world on speed dial. Yep, can you uh, put a curse over there? Yep, you put a curse over there. He doesn't even have the spiritual sensitivity enough to see the messenger of the living God when he's right standing in his face, but his donkey does. Okay, so he's got less spiritual sensitivity than a donkey. That's the joke. That's why Balaam's like, you made a fool out of me to his donkey. And the donkey should have, yeah, I am making, God is using me to make a fool out of you, Balaam. He's got less spiritual sight than his female donkey. She knows her maker when she sees him. And so after being confronted, Balaam, he recommits himself to speak only what God tells him and proceeds on his way. He's probably a bit scared by now. And skipping to the end of the story, the long short of it is that Balaam ends up only blessing the people of Israel, much to the horror of King Balak. Because remember what Balak said at the beginning. I know that whoever you bless is blessed. Whoever you curse is cursed. Balaam, Balak, the king, knows that this guy gets results. And so Balaam is, or Balak, the king, is just really upset. Um, and, And one of the things that's really funny about the whole story is Balak, the king, after the first blessing, Balak's like, man, um, maybe you just need a location change. Like, you weren't able to do it from there, so we'll go, we'll sacrifice more animals, and, and you can curse them from this location. Well, oh, that didn't work. And he's like, man, you're killing me. Like, okay, what about this location? So he goes to a third, and he's like, look, you've got a great view from up here. You can see the whole nation okay maybe maybe it'll work from here and then the spirit of god comes down we'll look at this in a second and balaam just bursts into a prophecy again blessing them but remember we're just doing the overview of the story and then we'll dive in so lest we get warm fuzzy feelings about balaam like wow look at all these great things he's saying about israel balaam is a total rascal okay numbers 25 and numbers 31 together they give us this whole story Okay, basically, when you put the pieces together, what happened was that after this whole plan to curse Israel failed, Balaam knew that the only way Balak could have any hope of defeating Israel, and probably the only way that he'd have any hope of acquiring some of this gold after this long trip, was by finding another way to hurt Israel. And Balaam, this twisted dude had just the right plan he would try to get Israel's own god Yahweh to turn against them maybe he'd heard some rumors about what happened at Sinai when Israel danced to the calf and rose up to engage in immorality so in chapter 25 we read about Balaam's plan that we don't find out that it was Balaam's plan until Numbers 31 verse 16 The Moabites, they pick some of their most beautiful women and they send them to Israel's camp to lead the hearts of the Israelite leaders away from their wives and from the Lord. And Balaam, he apparently, this prophet dude, he apparently got some of his own people, the Midianites, to join in. And it works. Many Israelites are destroyed for their evil because not only do they join with these prostitutes, but they also yoke themselves to Baal of Peor, to this idolatrous God through the the influence of these evil women. And Yahweh turns against them and destroys many for their sin. And yet, in the big picture, it didn't work still. Because Yahweh, the God of Israel, was still unwavering in his desire to bring blessing to the world through Israel. And Balaam himself, at the end of the book of Numbers, Numbers 21, verse 8, he is put to death for his own evil so Balaam dies at the end of the story. But now what I'd like to do for just a minute is move to the second point and hone in on the reality that God blessed Israel through Balaam instead of cursed them. First look at let's look at Balaam's first blessing. Numbers 23. Numbers 23 verse 5. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, "Go back to Balaam, Balak, and give him this word." So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with all the Moabite officials. Then Balaam spoke his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come denounce Israel. How can I curse those who God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and may my final end be like theirs. Well, it wasn't. Verse 11. Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. He answered, Must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Just like the donkey. God put words in a donkey's mouth, and now he's putting words in Balaam's mouth. Balaam, the prophet, he's totally out of control here. He is saying only what God has him say. Many years before this day, Genesis 22, verse 17 to 19, God had said to Abraham, the father of Israel, he said this, I will surely bless you, and I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven as the sand that is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of his singular enemies and in your seed singular shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice so here we see balaam in numbers this pagan prophet is bearing testimony to the fact that God has multiplied Abraham's seed numerically. They're as many as the dust. Just like God had said to Abraham. He has indeed blessed them. But the singular seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, this individual, the one who will possess the gate of his enemies, he hasn't arrived yet. And Balaam's going to talk about him in just a few verses. But first... I want to reflect on one more thing under this theme of blessing. Do you remember what Israel has been doing up to this point in the book of Numbers? They've been very, very busy sinning and rebelling against the Lord. Grumbling, arguing, disputing leadership, being immoral, rejecting the promised land. That was a big one. Breaking the Sabbath, and on and on the list goes. And at the core of all their sin is unbelief refusing to believe in God and in his promise of life and the promise of blessing to be found in obedience to his word. So because of their unbelief, because of their rebellion, they rejected the promised land and they're condemned to die outside the land in the wilderness. Many die in scenes of judgment from the Lord for specific sins. We looked at one of them last week. And yet despite all this, we see God here is still unswerving in his plan to bring blessing to the people of Abraham and to all peoples of the earth through this nation. God's plan to bring about Jesus, to crush the head of the enemy of God and defeat the world, defeat all the evil in the world, this plan is unhindered by human unbelief. And in our story today, we see that God can use the strangest vessels to bring about his purpose. He can put his own words in the mouth of a donkey or in the mouth of a pagan sorcerer like Balaam. And it's in the mouth of this pagan sorcerer that we read one of the Bible's earliest descriptions of the king who will come from Israel to rule the whole world one day. And that leads us to our third point this morning, the promised king. All in all, Balaam gives seven oracles of blessing on israel we looked at the first one in the second one balaam says this verses 21 to 24 of numbers 23 he says no misfortune is seen in jacob no misery observed in israel the lord their god is with them the shout of a king is among them wait wait a second though israel doesn't have a king yet so who's their king the shout of a king is among them well God is their king, but God himself is about to tell Balaam about a coming king to Israel in the third and the fourth oracles. Balaam is seeing the future here, so stay tuned. Balaam goes on to look at the past, though. Verse 22, God brought them out of Egypt. That's the nation of Israel, the whole nation, them. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. So in other words... My divinations, my evil omens don't work. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion. And now Destiny is going to bring up um, on the screen, hopefully it works, a a chart with some verse, some connections. This is a handout. I had printed some out, but I figured this would be easier. Um, Look at the column in the middle. Hopefully you can see it. Um, That's some quotes from Numbers 23. Balaam says a king is in the midst of Israel. and, And then he talks about the whole nation as coming out of Egypt and being like a crouching lion. Now look at chapter 24, verse 1. Something about this third oracle is different from the previous two. When Balaam saw... I'm going to read 24, verse 1. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to seek omens. The omens don't work. There's no omens against Israel. You can't work this up. So he doesn't go to seek these omens anymore. But he set his face toward the wilderness, where Israel is, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And much to Balaam's, er, Balak, the king's chagrin, Balaam realizes here that the message changing location isn't going to make the blessing change. So the Spirit lands on him, and he starts talking about Jesus. He says, chapter 24, verse 7 to 9, "'Water will flow,' speaking of Israel, "'water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be in many waters.'" And his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries, and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He crouches. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, singular. And cursed is everyone who curses you, singular. Now, the first thing about these verses that I want to point out is that the Spirit, He leads Balaam to shift from talking about Israel in verse 6 to the seed of Jacob, of Israel, who have been multiplied. Now, seed, that's a word that lends itself very well to switching from singular or from plural to singular. It's like our English word moose, okay? It can be one moose or many moose. It can be both. So context is really important to to tell us. Is he talking about one seed or multiple seed? So when Balaam says Israel's seed is in many waters, it's probably meaning plural there. It's a way of saying there's lots of Israelites. They're everywhere. Like their seed has gotten into the waters and spread out all over the earth. God has blessed them. And then he says that they have a king who is higher than Agag. That's a singular king. Whose kingdom shall be exalted. Remember chapter 23, a few verses before, where we read that there's a shout of a king among Israel? Well, here, Balaam talks more about this king. He's going to have an exalted kingdom, and he'll be higher than Agag. Now, who is this Agag guy? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Well, Agag was a king of the Amalekites, who are the enemies of Israel. That's the other place we see Agag show up in the Bible. And uh, Saul refuses to kill Agag, and so Samuel hacks him to pieces before the Lord. That story you can find in 1 Samuel. And um, Saul, Agag is an enemy of the people of God. However, there is a textual variant here, an old variant, that has, instead of Agag, the word dog, Gog, G-O-G. His throne shall be higher than Gog. Now, in the Bible, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and in Revelation chapter 20, Gog is the end-time enemy of the people of God. Gog is like this picture of all, Gog and Magog are like these pictures of these end-time enemies who are allied against God and against his Messiah. And so here, Balak is saying, His throne shall be higher than Gog. The main point is that This Messiah, this king, he's going to have the highest throne in the world. It's going to be higher than any of God's enemies. So whether it's Agag or Gog, the point is, Jesus' throne will be higher than the thrones of all men. Now, notice the next phrase about the king in Numbers 24, verse 8. God brings him out of Egypt. Now, if you look at the handout again, um, it's the orange. Numbers 23, God brings them out of Egypt. Numbers 24, some English translations actually put them there. But it's not them, it's actually him. Which, people are like, what? what's, what's going on? Who's the him? Well, I think him is very intentional. Speaking by the Spirit of God, Balak is not copying what he said before. He's talking now about a singular individual who's going to repeat what his forefathers did. He's going to be coming out of Egypt like them, okay? Who is this king? Well, the gospel writer Matthew tells us. Jesus did come out of Egypt after escaping there because of Herod's attempt to destroy him. Hosea the prophet talks about this too. Matthew quotes him. Out of Egypt I call my son. Where does Hosea get this whole typology of the nation coming out and then another individual son coming out of Egypt. Hosea gets it from Numbers. And Matthew gets it from Numbers looking at Hosea. I mean, from Hosea looking at Numbers. The, the Bible quotes the Bible constantly. And we get cold, totally lost when we don't see these things. And so, so there's going to be a singular individual who's going to come out of Egypt, just like the nation came. And he's going to be like a representative reliving the history of the people of Israel. And in chapter 23... The nation is actually compared to a crouching lion. You can look at the handout again. B- but, but in Numbers 24, verse 9, Balaam speaks of the coming king, this individual, and he says, he crouches down like a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Why would Balaam say that? Well, now go to the left column. Genesis 49. The aging father of Jacob, er, f- father Of the 12 tribes of Israel, the man called Jacob, or Israel, he calls all of his sons together to bless them. And although some of them get more cursed than blessed, actually, but you're in the context of cursing and blessing in Genesis 49. And Jacob utters a poem, much like Balaam's prophecy here is, is in poetic form. And here's Jacob's poem, how it starts. Genesis 49, verse 1. Gather yourselves together, and I may tell you what will happen in days to come. Or literally, at the end of days. Then, he says in verse 9 to 10, this is one of the things that's going to happen at the end of days. The NIV actually has the best translation here. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return to the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse him? Did you hear that? Balaam, in Numbers 24, is quoting Genesis. And he's quoting Jacob's blessing on Judah, exactly, when he talks about this king who will be exalted in Israel. So verse 10 of Genesis 49 goes on. So we read verse 9, now verse 10. The scepter, that's a king's ruling staff. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, some translations have Shiloh come, some translations go all funny here, but I really think the best reading of this passage is, until... He comes, or until it comes, it could be the staff comes to whom it belongs, or until he comes to whom it belongs. Either way, it says the same thing. There's a coming one who's going to get that scepter, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So here we read that the kingly scepter in the midst of Israel, it was to be passed from one son of Judah to another son, from David to Solomon to Rehoboam, and on and on. And then there was a really long break during exile, and then they came back and there was no succession until jesus the son of david comes and the ruling scepter will pass to him he is the lion of the tribe of judah to whom all the nations will one day bow now remember verse 1 of genesis 49 it says this is all going to take place at the end of days the days when Jesus comes. All throughout the Bible, this phrase, at the end of days. Unfortunately, all our translations translate it different. In the latter days, in the days to come, in, fu- in the future. And it makes you miss the connections. These, these phrases, this phrase, at the end of days, is like this like drum roll. Days of the Messiah. Isaiah 2-2. At the end of days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the highest of all mountains. And all the peoples will stream to it. Daniel got this phrase. Isaiah's got, the, I mean, it's all over it. We could do a whole sermon on that phrase. So here, Genesis 49, at the end of days, in the the days of the Messiah. And Balaam, by the Spirit's work, is quoting Genesis 49 in Numbers 24. So, once again, here's what we've seen so far. At the end of days, in the days of the Messiah, a lion would rise from the tribe of Judah. He'd come out of Egypt. He'd hold the scepter of a king. He'd have an exalted kingdom far above the enemies of God's people, even above Gog. In fact, not only will he destroy all the enemies of God, but all nations will one day bow down before him in obedience. Now, it shouldn't surprise any of you that Balak the king did not like this prophecy at all. And he basically tells Balaam, look, you got to pack up and head home fast. Or you're not only getting no paycheck, but something worse, right? And so Balaam says this, Numbers 24, verse 14, Behold, I'm going to my people. Come. I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come, literally at the end of days. Balaam quotes again, Genesis 49 verse one. And he says, this is what's going to happen at the end of days. And then he starts talking about Jesus for the second time. And he says, verse 17, I see him individual, but not now. Days to come, end of days. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise in Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly, one from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. Think of the son of Adam, son of man, in Daniel 7. To him was given dominion that all tribes and nations... I mean, we could go... This is central to the whole Bible. All right, I don't want... To, it's not in my notes. I don't want to get sidetracked. We could have two hours of a sermon here. But anyway, these verses are loaded. At the end of days, said Balaam, someone's coming like a blazing star. And he's going to rise from Jacob. Remember Genesis 22, which I read a few minutes ago? It said that the children of Israel would be as numerous as the stars. Stars are, as a, are to be a picture, right, of Abraham's many seed or children. But one star, one seed, would rise as a forever king one day. And friends, years later, Magi from the east, Balaam's stomping grounds, actually, they would travel miles and miles like Balaam to worship this king, to bow before him. To him will be the obedience of the peoples, and they're bringing their treasures. And they're redoing the journey of Balaam, and they're they're actually bowing before the Messiah. Because they saw a star rise over Israel at his birth. And we as Christians, we believe that this king, he will return to finish the second half of this prophecy. He has risen at his resurrection, he's ascended to heaven. And though he completely he defeated evil decisively at the cross, he will return one day to completely defeat it, as promised in Genesis. 3, verse 15 and numbers 24 the seed of the woman who came through abraham's line he will return to crush all human rebellion against god and he will make his blessings known all throughout the earth as far as the curse is found now in numbers 24 moab once again it's, it's understood to be a representative of the enemies of god just like agag or, or gog was a representative of God's enemies a few verses earlier. And Edom, in the Bible, Edom was Esau, Jacob's brother, Esau. Edom has the same spelling as the word mankind. Same spelling. And so is it Edom or is it mankind? Context, right? Well, Edom then, because it has the same spelling, oftentimes is just used just like Gog. The Israelites can use different kings as like, A picture of all the enemies of God so Edom can actually be used as a picture of all of mankind so when it says that Edom will be possessed by the end-time king it's not saying that Jesus is gonna somehow own Esau no it's just this idea that humanity this representative Edom humanity okay is going to be possessed by the end-time king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who, Genesis 49 said, would have the obedience of all the peoples. We also see in Numbers 24, verse 19, that one from Jacob will have dominion. That's Jesus. Not only will he destroy all evil, but he will rule all the nations of the earth in the new creation. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus, again, he will make his blessings known as far as the curse has found. So in conclusion, everyone wants to be blessed, not cursed. Right? I don't think you want curse coming on your life. You want blessing. And the message of the Bible is clear. The only way to experience the blessings of Eden that we lost, to experience the perfect creation again, is to turn to the king through whom all the nations of the earth and you and I can find blessing. Jesus is the fount of all blessing. He is the source of every good thing. And every good thing, every truly good thing that we experience in this life on earth is but a taste of the blessings that the new creation will hold. We saw marriage yesterday. Marriage does bring a lot of joy. It can also bring great suffering and pain as well. Because the world is broken. But marriage brings joy. And the delight and awe that fill our hearts when we hold a beautiful baby. So perfect and tiny and cute, right? Brings joy. Friendship is one of earthly blessings. Earth's greatest blessings. The closeness and companionship that friendship offers. Food with its ability to fill and satisfy and delight us at the same time. It can fill us, it can satisfy us, and it can bring us pleasure. Food is amazing. It's an amazing blessing from the Lord. Think of the coolness of a breeze when your skin is sweaty and how good that feels. It's a blessing. Or the warmth of a fire on a cold night. and The blessing that that is. The smell of bacon cooking, which I can't smell, so I'll never experience that until the new creation. Or the breathtaking beauty of a sunset that almost hurts our hearts because it's so pretty. The lushness of the grass right after a fresh rain and the smell. The beauty that that is and the blessing to enjoy it. The intricate beauty of a flower and the rugged beauty of a massive oak tree or towering, jagged, snow-peaked mountains that you just see and they go for miles. It's so beautiful. And it's one of Earth's blessings. This world is filled with beauty and blessing and goodness. Blessing that our hearts were made to delight in, actually, and to dive into. And enjoy without reservation. Because as we do, we can hear. The deeper we go into the joys of earth, the things of earth, the good, solid joy. The deeper we go in, the more they call us further up and further in to our relationship with the one who is the fountain of all good things and all blessing the king who made all these things with his word the heavens and all of their glory the earth filled with the glory of god they're shouting to us actually without words taste us smell us see us feel us and so behold the glory of the living god creation is a diving board for worship as we go down into creation we spring up In thankfulness and in gratitude to the giver of all good things. And yet, for all its beauty and all the blessing that we are surrounded with, this world hurts terribly. It's still filled with curse and evil and shouting and pain and sickness and temptation and betrayal and the ache of loneliness and shame coming from failure and ruin that's caused by pride. And we could go on and on. Do you read the news? horrible the things that are happening all around us the world is a mess you ever look at the news and you just want to reach out and crush everything that's wrong with the world one day Jesus will our heavenly father will say son the time is now And the very skies that tell the glory of God, they will split. And Jesus will descend like a bolt of lightning, unstoppable, unbeatable, with blazing fire, and he will consume his enemies. He will utterly crush the devil. And he will purify his blood-soaked world. Nothing will get in the way of his blessing then. He will finish the job that he started at the cross. And when he returns you and I, we must be found living in obedience and faith in him because every knee will bow. And the only question is, are we going to bow in delight? Are we going to marvel and rejoice at his coming? Or will we be forced to bow and be driven from the new creation lest we destroy it once more like Adam who destroyed the first creation? Hell is a horrible place. But it is a mercy because it protects God's creation from evil. The evil of those who refuse to bow to their king. Will we bow? That is my prayer. Do not take your faith for granted. To him, to Jesus will be the obedience of all the people's And the new creation. But Gog. All his followers. Along with Satan. And his demons. And all who do not bow before King Jesus. They will be crushed. Just like Genesis 3.15 says. He will crush the serpent. And defeat his offspring. That is our hope. If we're believers. That all that is broken and evil in this world. Will be done away with and that everything good that we've ever experienced will never end. But as C.S. Lewis writes in Chronicles of Narnia, we will only gallop further up and further in, enjoying more and more of the beauty. Let's pray. Lord, we long for you to come. As the Bible ends, come, Lord Jesus. So our hearts say, come, Lord Jesus. Be glorified in your saints, and we want to marvel at you when you arrive. Help us to hate our sin and to long for our Savior. And I pray, Lord, for those that do not know you that we come in contact with, that you would give us boldness to point them to the fountain of all blessing and of every good thing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.